You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 157. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, a production of the Wild Lens Collective, where we bring you engaging conversations about conservation, wildlife, and beyond. My name is Matt Podolsky, and I will be your host for today's episode. I'm very excited to now be sharing the hosting responsibilities here on the show with an amazing team of producers that we've put together. From now on, you'll be hearing not only episodes produced by Catherine Dunning and myself, but also stories from Serena Simons and Greg Haddock. These folks have some really amazing stories in the pipeline, so be sure to stay tuned in the coming weeks to hear what they're working on. Today's episode is about drones. I spoke with the founders of an organization called Oceans Unmanned about how they are using drones to assist in conducting biological research, as well as how they are working to reduce wildlife disturbance from drones. I'm Matt Pickett. Uh, I was a aircraft pilot for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, for 20 years, flying a variety of fixed-wing aircraft, doing environmental research and monitoring everything from manatee surveys down in Florida to polar bear surveys in the Arctic. So I did that for 20 years and retired uh, about 10 years ago, and NOAA contracted me to try to figure out how unmanned aircraft systems were just coming online at the time could help with environmental research and monitoring. A lot of the work I had done in manned aircraft, they thought maybe in the future it could potentially be done with unmanned aircraft systems. So they contracted uh, me to do some of that work. And Bryant was helping out at the time, and we kind of realized that a lot of the stuff that we, would, we wanted to do, uh, we couldn't do internal to NOAA or through private companies because of regulatory bureaucracy and the hurdles with the FAA and within NOAA itself. And so we were partnering with a lot of NGOs and nonprofits to try to utilize this technology for environmental research and monitoring. And Brian suggested, well, why don't we just start our own nonprofit um, to kind of fill that niche because we realized it was a niche that this new technology was coming online and a lot of people had use for it, but they're a little intimidated uh, about how to use it and how to get through the bureaucracy and the paperwork to authorize themselves to use it. So that was kind of the, the birth of Oceans Unmanned uh, about five years ago. Brian and I teamed up to, to start Oceans Unmanned. So I'm Brian Taggart. The Brian he's been talking about, we kind of had similar careers. We both were NOAA uh, aviators, and I did 26 years in NOAA. We flew a lot of the same aircraft, the Twin Otter, a lot of the marine mammal surveys Matt was talking about. Then we both flew a... Uh, Cessna Citation for a lot of high-altitude photography. NOAA does uh, coastal shoreline mapping, and that's what we use that for. And then I flew a, a P-3 Orion aircraft for a lot of severe weather research, thunderstorms, hurricanes, things like that, before I retired. And UAVs were not really in the NOAA uh, wheelhouse when I retired. They just started coming on, like Matt said, kind of retired DOD uh, UAVs that they would give us to use and then Matt said, well, we talked about nonprofits and a little private work. And so then we formed Oceans on Man, like he said. 
it's a very interesting niche, and it's um, people are always thinking of new uses, new ways to use these unmanned aircrafts or drones, which is what we're talking about here. I, I guess I'm wondering if there was like something specific that happened, right, that like made you realize the potential that this technology had for this this purpose that that you guys are are using it for. You know, like did was there something that you know, like like a moment where you were like. Oh my God! I realize like the potential that drones have for collecting this type of data. Sure, I, I have one story. I mean, you know, first of all, my whole family has been kind of centered around the ocean. My dad worked for the Navy and NOAA for thirty years. My brother worked for NOAA for thirty years. My younger brother works for the Coast Guard still after thirty years. So, you know, that that kind of passion for the ocean and passion for protection of the ocean is is kind of in my blood and in my family. Um, so using technology to do something that I loved anyway was kind of a natural fit. But I think one of the big moments was about seven years ago, we were testing you know, a military hand-me-down drone for humpback whale research in New England. And it had an infrared sensor, which was you know, pretty cutting edge at the time, military technology. And we actually recorded like the first ever infrared footage from the from a drone of bubble net feeding and for those who are not familiar with bubble net feeding humpback whales use this technique where they swim down below the surface and swim in a circle to create a and release bubbles from their mouth as they're swimming in the circle and it creates a cylinder uh, that traps the fish inside that cylinder and as the bubbles rise it forces the fish to the side to the to, to rise into the surface and the humpback swim inside that cylinder and gobble up all the all the fish and it's a really just incredible thing to see from the air and to see it in infrared where you can actually see the cold water and and the bubble net fi- um, forming underwater that was kind of an aha moment where it was for me using this technology you can see things that scientists have never seen before at a relatively low cost i mean to do this we were, we were flying from a small boat using at the time it was expensive technology but i knew it would get cheaper and 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 more capable but having that moment to see something that scientists had never seen before um at a relatively low cost uh was pretty impressive that's kind of when the light bulb came on for me yeah you mentioned low cost i think that's the big uh key to uavs and even in the science world because our background is just hauling scientists in the back of aircraft uh looking out the window counting things and so uh, it's very expensive, and, and budget's always a concern. And UAVs really allowed the scientific community to have a different approach to uh, acquiring data, and it's and it's it's cheap. We're flying a current project now that we use a drone we bought at Best Buy, and uh, we we put some external gear onto it to increase its capability. But uh, it's it's a cost savings. Your your footprint's a lot smaller. And your your work area is a lot smaller too. You you can't cover near what you can with an aircraft, but data's data, you know. And and there's not there's nothing wrong with small smaller sets of data, and you can get a little closer to the ground and and see 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 smaller things than you could with air aircraft. As far as like uh, animals on the ground or birds and trees and things like that, things you you would never be able to do with aircraft, uh, drones or UAVs have allowed the scientific community to really uh, embrace them and see new things and think of new ways to solve their own problems. Yeah, but n- another example was we were um, helping a researcher tag blue whales uh, off of the coast of California. 
And he would go way offshore in, in a small rigid hold inflatable. And if he was fortunate, he would tag two or three blue whales in, in a very long day because he would have to wait to see the blue whale surface and then try to maneuver his boat um, to get ahead of it and hope it surfaces again and attack, attach this suction satellite tag. And so we supported him to see, well, can we increase your efficiency by using drones and giving you that overhead view? And so we flew a drone and, and fed the video feed, and we could see the, the whale before it was surfing, surfacing, and we could direct him, hey, you guys need to get a quarter mile ahead. All right, it's coming up in 10, 9, 8, and position him to get um, the satellite tags on the blue whale. And it was a super foggy day, and the, the, the deck was at 200 feet. And it's like, there's no way you could get an aircraft out here. So this drone is providing not only very helpful information, but something that an aircraft just couldn't do because we were so far offshore. The weather was not good, but you could still fly a drone off a boat. And instead of tagging two or three whales a day, he was tagging 15 to 17 whales a day. And so the, the, the cost savings there from just providing that aerial perspective was another one of those moments where you know, biologists really need to rethink how they've historically done this stuff um, because this tool can just really change the game and uh, on how this science is done. Another example is we NOAA flies aircraft into hurricanes, and so they developed a uh, drone which is launched from inside the aircraft, and it falls through the atmosphere. The wings unfold, the engine starts, and it hangs around the eye for a few more hours, collecting another set of da- data that the aircraft uh, is off collecting some more information. So, you know, using aircraft to deliver drones into a, 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 I'll say a hostile environment. DOD does it all the time, but it's another uh, scientific use of drones, and, and that drone's expendable, but, but the data that it collects is valuable stuff. You're using drones that you bought at Best Buy, right? And I mean, I think a lot of people, when they think of drones, and especially like using drones to like do uh, scientific research and collect biological data. You know, they're assuming that you're 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 engineers, right? And you're building these big, complicated drones with all kinds of different devices on them to collect data. But that's not not always the case, right? It's not always the case. They're, we're currently flying a, a marble mirrorlet project over in Oregon with uh, Oregon State University, where we're we're looking at. Uh, nested mirrorlets in the old growth forest and we're talking these are these trees are up to 200 250 feet tall and so they've contracted us to help them solve the mystery of trying to trying to find nested seabirds up in trees and 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 one we found a couple weeks ago was 187 feet up and so we we use a the DJI Phantom series and it's a it's it's a small lightweight drone and to fly drones around treetop level or below the treetop canopy you can't have a huge footprint and you're also trying to detect something that doesn't want to be detected and you don't want to scare anything and and flush a bird off its nest so you you your only option is small drones and but uh that only comes with just an rgb camera so what we did is we outfitted an external FLIR camera which is an infrared unit below it and so we have dual monitors a regular camera and an infrared camera which detects the heat signatures of the birds that we're able to uh, verify with the camera to identify them in trees uh, once they narrow it down to three or four trees where they think a nested bird is and what that does is just reduces the footprint of people in the woods time of these uh, um, students in the woods the the research volunteers 
it's many, many man hours to do all this stuff. And if drones can reduce that and reduce time and, and save money so they can be doing something else, there's a big benefit to that. So, uh, yeah, the whole outfit with the camera and and uh, the drone and everything involved, you're talking five or $6,000, but by no means you're talking an aircraft of $2 million to fly around and do these things. So your organization is called Oceans Unmanned, and yet here we are in Boise, Idaho. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you guys do work all over the world, um, but you know why Boise as sort of a, a, a hub for your organization? Brian said he couldn't afford to live near the ocean. And this is <laughs> <laughs> when I retired from NOAA in 2011, uh, we moved to Boise, and uh, and so... Matt and I had been kicking around for years the idea, and so uh, t- a continuation of a lot of NOAA's work is is more ocean than interior, uh, to a degree, depending on if you're talking the stuff we were involved with. The Weather Service is nationwide. Uh, a lot of fish, like salmon, you know, they go from saltwater to freshwater. The states control the salmon. And so uh, NOAA and even Department of Interior, based in Boise here, NIFSI, the fiery center, is uh, was a known quantity, and we kn- we've known those guys. We've worked with a lot of those guys for for a long time. So we just kind of we were going to choose two guys in a drone, but but uh, <laughs> we, the website was taken. So we uh, we came up with Oceans on Man, and we figured we'd better be based somewhere in the ocean just for uh, legitimacy. And so we're California based, but we have our our panel of directors which live all over the country and Matt, Matt's in California I'm here in Idaho and and uh, but whenever we get a project we both meet wherever it is and ship all our gear there and get, get some work done. Yeah, And why, and why we're, our company is called Oceans Unmanned, the nonprofit's called Oceans Unmanned. We don't limit ourselves to strictly marine research. I mean we're environmental research and monitoring and as Brian mentioned the Marble Muralette Project is a seabird that happens to nest up to 100 miles inland. So we're hiking through forest to try to find their, their their nest. And Brian mentioned the salmon and the watersheds and any kind of environmental research. And I think people who you know choose to live in Boise you know are, are big fans of the environment and the outdoor scene here in Boise. So I think it all links to that kind of environmental respect and kind of passion for for the outdoors, whether it's the marine environment or or the mountain environment. Absolutely. I want to ask you guys a question that that I actually get asked a lot as a filmmaker, uh, which is related to the ethics of using drones, especially in close proximity to wildlife. And uh, I mean, this is this is the focus of what you guys do, right? I mean, you're you're using drones to get these unique perspectives um, on a diverse array of different wildlife species, from blue whales, as you said. Um, to these, you know, small birds, the marbled murelets. Um, how do you guys address this question of, like, you know, ensuring that you're not doing more harm than good? That's Brian. Brian must have paid you to ask that question because. Uh, <laughs> um, so when he first started, uh, some biologists were approaching us to to help, you know, do research. But at the same time, some of the resource the agencies along Central California, namely uh, Bureau of Land Management, BLM, was uh, 
increasingly concerned about the potential for recreational users of drones to disturb, in, in this case specifically, seabird colonies along Central California coast. Central California coast is very spectacular, beautiful, so a lot of recreational drone users were flying to get you know stunning imagery and videography and um, disturbing some critical nesting habitat uh, of these seabirds. So BLM approached us and said, you know, we're a government bureaucracy. We can't move quickly enough to kind of launch an education and outreach program that will address this concern. Can we partner with you to help launch an education and outreach program? So with that incentive, we launched EcoDrone program, which is an education outreach program. The Eco is for environmentally conscious operations of drone. And at first, um, we wanted to try to figure out how to kind of identify best practices for different species and kind of get the scientific input. But what we quickly realized was each species kind of responds differently to different types of drones. Um, some species requ- uh, respond to uh, whether it's a shadow or the shape of the drone. Other species, kind of depending on the noise profile of the drone, may or may not react. It also depends on the season, if it's a breeding, breeding season or, or feeding season. So you had this broad array of different types of drones, different kind of species response. And so we decided, you know, we really can't give specific guidelines. We have to create just a general awareness campaign of you might disturb wildlife. You have to be aware that there are environmental rules and regulations out there, Marine Mammal Protection Act, Endangered Species Act, that apply to people flying and operating drones. And so we, we've kicked off EcoDrone. We have education materials that BLM and pass out at trailheads along California. We've partnered with Tread Lightly, uh, which is a nonprofit for respecting federal lands. Uh, we've partnered with Seabird Protection Network, uh, the National Marine Sanctuary Program, um, to basically create this general awareness campaign. We're not telling you exactly how to fly around each species, but you need to do your research, uh, consult local scientists about you know what the laws are that may apply. We have a website that kind of acts as a portal to help you kind of sift through this information. And for our r- research, we're always working with biologists or the researchers who understand the specific species. So for the Marbury Murillette project, we have you know two seabird biologists on staff looking for potential disturbance. And so we're, we're covered, and of course, we have to go through all the research permits and get all the permits for Endangered Species Act, Marine Mammal Protection Act. So the concept of EcoDrone, I guess the takeaway message, and I'll let Brian talk if he has anything to add, is just check out our website, ecodrone.org. Try to understand the species. Try to understand the applicable environmental laws that apply to your flights and, and fly respectfully and understand that this is a growing concern because drones can access areas that are previously kind of inaccessible um, to man-made disturbance, and so it is a, it is a concern, and we, we, we're trying to get everybody to act responsibly. Yeah, like Matt said, our current project we're working on with the uh, Miralets, we're, by permit, only allowed to fly one hour a day per nest, which is pretty restricted in the world. We're, we're by permit, only allowed uh, a minimum people because people don't realize that people in the woods attract scavenger birds and scavenger birds look for anything besides what we leave behind which is nothing but it attracts them to a potential food source of a nested mirrorlet high in the trees so uh it, it it's 
Yeah, EcoDrone is is we're just trying to get at people's in their in their forethought when they're flying to like realize you might be impacting things you don't even realize. Just just do, just do the right thing. Don't 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 chase and harass wildlife and and it, it's fun to get a picture, but you know for every picture you take, there's five people behind you taking the same picture and 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 animals are, are disturbed and and it's it's not the right thing to do. So again, everything we do is most of the things we do are, are, are permitted and uh, I hope everything we do is permitted <laughs> unless, <laughs> well, you've been, unless you've been missing something you better right. say that on yes, the air uh, well I'm just thinking sometimes we go shoot some b-roll in the, in the, in the, in the offshore we, we go some some pretty spectacular places that, that are that are that are uh, very good visually that we you know just get some stuff get some stuff in the can to make some uh, uh, content for our site. But I, I think the other point is, is people don't understand that wildlife disturbance does matter. I mean, when, when you know, my son chases seagulls down the beach and they fly away, you're thinking, well, that, who, birds fly, who cares, they'll fly and come back. But when that happens on a critical nest, um, if, if that bird gets flushed and knocks the, ed, the, the egg off the cliff into the water or, or exposes it to predators, Seagulls, eagles can come in and, and, and swoop and, and grab the, the egg or eat the, the chick. And so there is, even just one single disturbance can really affect not only an individual but a colony. And that's a tough message to get out there and get people to understand. It is a single disturbance issue uh, can have devastating effects to an individual and a colony. An example of us flying uh, that Marilette project last week, there was a, a chick in a tree and we were searching for it. They knew where it was because they had a camera from altitude. They, they, a climber went up and put a, a zoom camera on it, and they were watching it real time. And we were a hundred feet away from it. And it started standing up and looking around, and 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 the last thing we wanted to do was disturb it. So it actually left the nest. So we called off the science and turned on the research mode and and approached it slowly and if it if it looked too agitated we backed off and so we we never even got close to it uh with our equipment enough to even image it so it taught us that searching uh for for a, a, a young chick on the nest is different than an adult laying on an egg and so mm-hmm. nobody's ever done either one of those things so it so it taught us that and and these birds have radio tags on them so they can tell if there's a bird on the nest or, or they know the pattern of the bird I'll say mm-hmm. so it was a good uh, it was a good research moment that, that is going to help us moving forward mm-hmm. so you know just as sort of like an example to try to you know uh, for folks who are maybe listening who are recreational drone enthusiasts you know say somebody like that wanted to uh, fly a drone uh, down the Snake River Canyon uh, just south of Boise um, where there are tons and tons of uh nesting birds of prey right um there's potential to get some really cool drone footage there to get a perspective on these really cool birds that uh you would never get uh, never be able to get without a drone um like for somebody in that position who's like i'd love to get some cool shots of these uh these birds you know like how would you suggest they approach a situation like that where there's no like there's no protocol in place right there's no like website you can go that says you have to stay within this 
number of feet of this bird when it's flying or in, you know what I mean? So what I would recommend is, you know, call the, the local Forest Service office or BLM office, try to find a biologist who can tell you what birds of concern are there when the breeding season is, when the nesting season, gra- ga- gather all the information you can and why there are not specific guidelines for species if you do disturb an endangered species, that is a violation of the Endangered Species Act. And basically, if if an animal is looking at your drone, that could be interpreted as disturbance. So you have to be very careful. If you're flying and an elk stops and looks at your drone and hears that noise, that can theoretically be um, be disturbance under the definition of various um, environmental rules and regulations because you're altering the behavior uh, of that animal. And so the, the, the threshold is pretty low, and so you have to be careful. Reach out again to you know the BLM office or the Forest Service office. You can't fly in Park Service land. That We should to make that very clear. Um, so try to reach out to the experts and figure out, hey, well, you know, maybe you can fly that canyon off-season and still get that spectacular shot when, when endangered animals are not there. And so maybe you can fly at sunrise or sunset when they are not on the nest. So work with your local biologists and your experts to try to figure out how to, to how to do that without harming any or potentially harming any wildlife and idaho is full of wilderness areas which is prohibited to fly a drone in a wilderness area i brought my drone up when i was floating the middle fork of the salmon but i knew it was a wilderness area and I, but i asked the guide i'm like can i fly my drone he goes absolutely not i it was a rhetorical question i just wanted to make sure he kind of knew what he was talking about and he did and most of the most of them all do but remember the FAA guidelines for Joe average user is visual line of sight. And, and it, it's pretty intimidating to take off a drone and go too far away from yourself, especially down a nice gorge. You're not going to get too far before you can't physically see it anymore. And, and it, it, when, you, when you lose sight of your, of your drone shooting pretty photography, you get kind of concerned because you have to get it back if something else happens. So it... it, it uh, Beyond visual line of sight, less than 400 feet are, are the are the rules for recreational users. Uh, you can get uh, waivers for a lot of those things we do, but but most people that are trying to shoot their YouTube or uh, video for for themselves or family are are not going too far away, but they're definitely probably getting too close to something they shouldn't. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, and of course for us, I mean, we're all biologists or have some backgrounds, you know, in biology. And as you said, it's like it is required for that drone to be um, line of sight. From you have to be able to see it, um, and therefore you should also be able to see any animals that are there. And observing behavior obviously is a really key component to to this topic, right? Absolutely. Um, and so just being aware, and as you said, like being conscious of like, oh, that animal looked at the drone, so like I'm too close. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I, I wonder, right, like, because this technology is advancing extremely quickly. Um, and, you know, many of these drones that, like, you can just purchase at Best Buy now, you can program routes into there. And so maybe, you know, people are maybe starting to pay less attention to where the drone is. Uh, maybe they lose line of sight occasionally. I, I guess I just wonder, like, is this something that that concerns you guys? And like, how do you address that? You know what I mean? Like, are you, I, I'm sure you guys are thinking because you started this organization, EcoDrone. Like, I mean, are are you trying to like, are you grappling with the pace 
of the technology as it comes out and like how to address new problems as they yeah, arise? The, the, the pace of the technology is, of course, one of the, one of the challenges and why the agencies reached out to us um, because they can't respond quickly enough. So a, a couple of points on that is the technology is, is getting better, uh, which opens up more areas for potential disturbance, but there's also solutions in that technology. Uh, Oceans Unmanned has made the commitment to outfit all our uh, equipment with the quieter props when available, uh, so there's less noise disturbance potential there. Some of the equipment, the higher-end equipment we've been working with, now has 30 times optical zoom, which theoretically allows you to be much, much farther away, so you don't need to be as close to get those shots that, that, that people really want. So the the advent of better high-end zoom cameras as that filters down to the commercial drone will allow people to back off a little bit from the wildlife shot they want lower noise props lower noise engines uh, will help with that disturbance for the noise profile um, and again you know the general education outreach campaign that eco drone is now uh, we hope to evolve as the technology change and more and more science because eco drone is all about also collecting the latest scientific information that science information about disturbance is still lagging as they catch up to this and 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 the best practices for species and different different type of drones will eventually come out and you'll be able to say okay well i'm in bear territory you know what's the biggest concern about bears is it the noise or the site profile you know 400 feet on this type of drone should allow me to, to get that shot i want so as that research comes and we publish it and push it out We'll be able to provide more specific guidance uh, as that research comes to fruition. Yeah, we just finished up a whale project this this winter in Maui, and everybody was asking, like, do the whales know the drones there? Because we were flying anywhere from uh, 100 feet to 10 feet over these whales, collecting uh, some imagery and and looking at some entanglement efforts. And it's probably safe to say they didn't, uh, but it's. Uh, it's 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 a question from a forty foot, forty ton animal to a four ounce bird. You know, you're you, you got to be aware. You have to you have to start somewhere. You know, right. And and you know the point for a lot of stuff we do is you know we're kind of supplementing or replacing aircraft or helicopters, which is much more disturbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember early on in the days we were flying some sea otters, and the the scientist was just jumping for joy because she actually got to see a young pup in playful behavior from the drone which she could never see from the helicopter because even at a thousand feet that noise of the helicopter would kind of scare them off at least make them a little bit um, you know kind of hesitant to 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 act naturally and without that with the drone there which was so quiet they couldn't even know it she got to see behavior that she could never see before from there so in, in a lot of our cases we're actually lowering the disturbance by replacing you know louder helicopters or manned aircraft with drones the problem is on the recreational side where you're accessing habitat that's been pre- previously kind of uh, unavailable for human disturbance and so if we can protect those areas without you know going too far with on the regulatory approach and that's why you know, we're out there preaching the eco-drone concept because we want the drone community as a whole to take on environmental stewardship as their mandate um, so they're not a, a regulatory solution being kind of dropped down from above that, that could be uh, prohibitive. Yeah, start high, look for a disturbance, and go lower. We were flying a uh, sea otter survey, and we went in 100 feet, no disturbance. We had a lot of folks with binoculars and telescopes looking, and we went down 10 feet, 
observed 10 feet and so we found the ceiling where we were comfortable they were comfortable letting us fly uh, and then uh, we wouldn't go below that because the animal would look up and that's that's take so we go up uh, from there I wonder because we've talked about how the rapid pace of this technology and how it's developing do you guys have any sense of like what might come next are there like any big developments in the drone world on the horizon as you know in regards specifically to like the mission of your organization oceans unmanned like what potential does this technology hold for the future within the realm of data collection and learning more about the behavior of wildlife so uh, i always answer this question about not about biology or environmental or drones at all but autonomous vehicles and i'm looking for the autonomous rv so that i can sleep in the back while I'm going on a road trip because th- that's my dream is I want that autonomous technology in my RV so I can sleep and wake up in a new national park every day that's Perfect. my dream Perfect. but um, for drones I think the next big uh, horizon is you know, anomaly detection and artificial intelligent machine learning whatever that, that you want to be is we still you know whether it's whales or murrelets or sea otters we're still visually interpreting that image and counting or looking for searching for or evaluating that animal or 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 that biological phenomenon and so to get to the point where you can send drones out and do a humpback whale survey and the computers will do that count for you where it's fully autonomous flying and can do large area surveys uh, and do that count for you or fly over a, a sea otter colony and tell you, oh, there's 12 a- animals right there. Um, that, that, I think, is going to be the next leap for biological monitoring is have that computer learning or anomaly detection software so you can do 90% of it just fully autonomous, including the, the counting and the analysis uh, of the species. Yeah, battery technology comes to mind that uh, the, the, the drones we're flying now are limited to... Uh, 20 to 25 minutes. And 60 minutes for a fixed wing. Yeah, and fixed wing is different. Fixed wing is more efficient, so up to, up, up to an hour of some fixed wings. And as battery technology gets a little better, you know, 10% is two minutes at that, at that level. But uh, that could make all the difference in the, in the world, in, in the science world. And I always tell people, because a lot of people are don't like drones flying around them. I'm like, I just wait 15 minutes, it'll be gone because the batteries are done. And then they'll probably don't, won't come back and they're probably not looking at you anyway. And so uh, battery technology is getting better. Matt mentioned those quiet props that we just we just got. And those reduce your uh, footprint or your, your uh, noise reduction by 50%. And that's, that's, a, that's a huge number, especially if you're uh, flying around wildlife. So a little incremental changes. Uh, funding is a big issue with you know like making these changes. There's some there's some high end DoD stuff out there, but uh, the stuff we use is not quite that high end. But you you can throw a lot of money at at things to get a better product, uh, collect some better stuff. Um, yeah, as far as the, the the pace of a technology technological change too in this field, I always tell you know any of our clients or partners who are saying, all right, I want to pull the trigger and, and buy a system. I always warn them, you're going to regret it in six months because, you know, that it's like an iPhone upgrade cycle on steroids where, you know, oh, I bought this one and six weeks later, it's like, well, they have the new version out and it's got twice the powerful camera and twice the duration um, and twice the payload capacity. So um, 
it, it's it's tough to figure out when to to jump in for a lot of these um, researchers and biologists who are like, do I want to buy this now because in two months there's going to be a better system. So I tell everybody, I'm like, yeah, you can buy now, but you'll regret it because something greater is just going to be released in the next month or two. So it, it's a challenge for people to to who want to k- keep up with the technology. Yeah, that's why they should partner with those. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So where can folks go to find out more about uh, your organization? Uh, we have a website, oceansonman.org. You can follow us on Twitter at oceansonman, one word, and, and kind of keep up on our latest projects and and uh, what we're doing and, and some information. And so it, there's a lot of good information on there. We we try to keep it, uh, keep it interesting. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Well, thanks yeah. a lot for uh, coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank um, you. Enjoyed it. Yeah. All right, that was our conversation with Brian Taggart and Matt Pickett, the founders of Oceans Unmanned and EcoDrone. Really fascinating to learn about how the extremely rapid pace of technological development in this field is influencing how we learn about and interact with wildlife. If you'd like to learn more about Brian and Matt's research, or if you'd like to learn more about best practices for minimizing wildlife disturbance while flying your drone, we'll have more information about Brian and Matt's work on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC157. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of the Wild Lens Collective. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors.